This is Guns and Butter. Stand-down order that you do have is we have um, Colonel uh, Marr, the commander of the um, Northeast Air Defense Sector. There's a request to him, launch all your planes. And he says, no, I won't do that because if I launch all my planes now, then they will all run out of gas at the same point, and I can't do that. So I'm keeping them all on the runway. And this is, this is the key to why... For one hour and 45 minutes plus, there's no effective air defense in this uh, highly critical and in the highly, usually highly militarized uh, area. And then when he does launch a couple of planes from Langley Air Force Base towards the end, he sends them out over the Atlantic Ocean. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, the 46 exercises and drills of 9-11. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. Today we discuss military exercises and drills that can be then flipped live we take a look at drills in the years leading up to the events of September 11th and those taking place on the day of. These 46 exercises and drills identified by Webster Tarpley are outlined in a revised Chapter 9 of the 5th edition of 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, Tarpley's seminal work on 9-11. This book is concerned not only with what did happen on 9-11, but also with larger tragedies which came close to happening, but which ultimately did not occur. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much. Good to be with you again. You have a new Chapter 9 for the fifth edition of 9-11 Synthetic Terror Made in the USA, the 46 Exercises and Drills of 9-11, which I have just finished reading. Great chapter. How has this Thank you. Cha- how has this chapter been updated for the fifth edition? Well, compared to the fourth edition, which came out uh, three or four years ago, the, the big difference is that I've found about 20... 20 to 25 more drills, depending on how you want to count it. Uh, The the history of my 9-11 synthetic is a history of of delving deeper and deeper into the drills. I think in the first edition in 2005, I was aware of five or six drills. There was, above all, Amalgam Virgo 01, Amalgam Virgo 02 that had come out in the hearings, although they suppressed it, it disappeared in the final report of that Kane-Hamilton Commission. Then by the second and third editions, I was up to 10 to 15 drills. The U.S. edition, the fourth edition of 2007, had about 25. Um, and then uh, I've added now um, the remainder. And I'll, a lot of these, let me, let me point everybody in the direction. If you want to, in a convenient way, research these drills for yourself, you can go to this complete 9-11 timeline, which is a, it's a, uh, a database which has been assembled by various people. It's part of a website called History Commons. And what you'll find there is uh, a lot of detail and with links. You can, you can uh, click on their keywords and follow the links back to the original publications where news of these drills appeared. 
the problem, of course, is that that whole website, they seem to be determined to ignore what their own data prove, which is that 9-11 was, of course, uh, an inside job. It was meaning, very specifically, it was a state-sponsored false flag synthetic terror action. It was a war provocation designed to produce the war of civilizations and the clash of civilizations in the form of the Afghanistan war, the Iraq war, and other wars that we've come close to or are now in with Libya. Uh, and uh, this was carried out by this rogue network or invisible government, which has been infesting the U.S. federal government in the current form since about the middle of the 1890s, since the time of Grover Cleveland. So rather than waste time with trying to blame this on Pakistan or Saudi Arabia or Israel or anybody else, the, the attention has to be focused on the U.S. Uh, federal bureaucracy and, above all, the interface between Wall Street and the intelligence community. If you can think of somebody like Alan Dulles, the Wall Street bond lawyer and uh, reputed Nazi sympathizer, or worse, who was one of the people to help create the CIA, if you think of his brother John Foster Dulles, that sort of gives you the neck of the woods that we're talking about, where those Wall Street lawyer types meet the intelligence community, and that, of course, is the CIA preeminently. Um, that's where you have to look uh, for the problem. These other countries that get involved are at most uh, very peripheral subcontractors who deliver things that the, uh, that the U.S. invisible government wants. I may make a partial exception for the British, since they, they uh, play a somewhat larger role than, uh, than others. But uh, that's basically the idea. So if you want to look at this stuff, go to the complete 9-11 timeline, but don't take seriously the, the overview that they seem to be trying to give you of 9-11. You have said that 9-11 was a desperate attempt to save U.S. domination and that 9-11 changed the agenda of every international gathering. What do you think was the goal of 9-11? Well, it's a geopolitical terrorism or spheres of influence terrorism. It's similar to what you had with the, uh, the Bader-Meinhof group in Germany in the 70s and 80s and the, uh, the Red Brigades in Italy back more or less in the same period. This is, this is where I started studying NATO uh, terrorism, NATO intelligence as a as a vector of uh, of terrorism, an organizer of terrorism. The the problem that you have is uh, the U.S. British Empire has been on uh, very uh, shaky ground for for quite a while. I mean, you had the collapse of the Soviet Union that seemed to give the U.S. and the British uh, a new phase of world domination. But by the end of the first decade after the collapse of the Soviets and the Warsaw Pact. You could see that the the Anglo-American empire was was tending to fall apart. You had countries like North Korea switching from the from the dollar to the euro. You had Saddam Hussein of Iraq switching from the dollar to the euro when it came to payments and and oil transactions. And then you had one thing that I detail in in the book is uh, a letter from Saudi Arabia uh, saying to the U.S., "Look, we're fed up with you. We have come to the parting of the ways. We're going to go and make our own independent foreign policy." Uh, you also had the fact that Pakistan had emerged as the first country with with nuclear weapons that was also a, a, a Muslim uh, majority country. So there was the Islamic bomb, and the United States regarded this as intolerable. There was also the open question of what would happen to those five former Soviet republics in Central Asia, which uh, Big New Brzezinski and others regard as very important for world strategy, as as indeed they are. Um, 
So all of this was, was happening, and the, the idea was a desperate ploy by this rogue network, Invisible Government. And again, it goes between Wall Street and the city of London. It's definitely an Anglo-American or international uh, entity. They wanted to um, somehow create a shock that would somehow stop the tendencies towards uh, disintegration of the empire and allow them to to uh, to reform it and and regroup it above all to save the dollar if you want one reason for 9/11 it's to save the dollar to prevent more countries from dumping the dollar because after 9/11 if you dumped the dollar uh, you were a terrorist it's clear and an army would be sent to conquer you and this is what happened to to Saddam Hussein uh, exactly this and and others and we had a couple of brushes with war with Iran that would have been conducted under the same auspices well, let's talk about the drills, the 46 exercises and drills that you have identified. How do you account for the absence of air defense for one hour and 45 minutes? Could you talk about the war games? Let, let, me, let me talk first about drills in general, okay, before we get into this, just so that people get the idea. Um, military establishments are constantly carrying out drills, war games, exercises, operations, which can be real fighting. Uh, and other activities. And they do this all the time. This is the, the essence of their training. The problem is with these drills, the, 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 the danger that every one of these drills poses is that the drill is supposed to have a scenario which is realistic. It's supposed to represent something that might actually happen in real life, and the military would be forced to defend against it. Uh, the problem is that the drills can be taken live. They can be flipped live. Drills inherently have a dangerous potential that by making what seem to be relatively small changes in the drills, they can be redirected and they can turn into real killing. In other words, they go from pretend killing in the case of, uh, well, any kind of you know, hijack drills or other, other drills, they turn into real terrorism with real deaths and real political consequences. And the, I think the most important thing for people to understand is the principle of this. And there was that it's, it's, it's there. And the, the general idea is, if you look at a terrorist act and you discover a drill which is close to it in time or space or both, and you see that the drill scenario corresponds very closely to the terrorist action that has, that, that has occurred, you have to assume that the terrorist event was created through the drill. And you cannot simply go on entertaining, as, as many uh, writers try to do, this idea of weird happenstance or you know, crazy uh, coincidence or, or anything of this sort, especially when it, it's not just one drill, but in the case of 9-11, it's, it's dozens and dozens and dozens, especially on the day of, but also other drills that, that, uh, that prepare it. And if I could, let me just give you some quick examples of this. Uh, the attempt to kill President Reagan in 1981 by Tinkley and who knows how many others. Um, in this case, there was a presidential succession drill going on, nine lives. So in the middle of a presidential succession drill, or right before it or right after it, there's actually an attempt to create a presidential succession. So what you'd have to do if you wanted to investigate that is look into that drill and see how that drill was taken live, because that's pretty much what happened. Another classic drill of... Um, of, of military purposes is Able Archer back in 1983. The U.S. did a nuclear war drill against the Soviets, which looked so realistic 
that the Soviets decided that it might be at the point of going live, that the, the, the drill might have transformed itself into a real attack. So the Soviets then went to their own red alert, and then for you know, a couple of days, the, the entire world was on the brink of, of nuclear war. This applies to our own time. The, the bombing of Libya was the subject of a, uh, an accord, an international treaty between London and Paris, Britain and France, uh, signed November 2nd, 2010, six months before the, uh, the big uh, bombing got going in, in Libya or, or thereabouts. And this was that the British and the French would hold a bombing drill. The drill was Britain and France bomb a North African country sometime in the spring-summer of 2011, and they called this Operation South Mistral. Well, guess what? On the 19th of March, Operation South Mistral was taken live, and you go seamlessly from the, from the drill into the actual bombing. A couple of other examples. The London, uh, July 7th, 2005, the London uh, Underground, or subway bombings. Uh, it's widely admitted, one of the people involved went on BBC radio or television and admitted it, that uh, he, his company had been holding simulated bomb drills in those stations at those times. Uh, wasn't that a weird happenstance? Well, I'm afraid not. It's, it's something much more sinister. Well, let's talk about the absence of air defense specifically. How do you account for the absence of air defense for one hour and 45 minutes? Could you talk about the war games and also, sure. the, and also the, the, the lockdown of military bases? Well, maybe the lockdown of military bases comes first. Uh, if, if we have these these interesting movies like, um, you know, Doctor Strangelove, uh, General, um, what is it, General uh, oh, Jack Ripper? Jack, Jack Ripper wants to he wants to launch his his bombers against the Soviet Union, so he locks down his base, which means you can't you can't get on, you can't get off, and in theory you can't even listen to the radio. Right? Funny scenes there. Another one is Seven Days in May. Right? Ecomcon has this base out in the desert, and you can't get in and you can't get out, and it's dangerous to try either one. So uh, what did they do? If you look at these forts here around Washington, Fort McNair, Fort Belvoir, and a few others, all of these went on limited access lockdown in the a week or so before 9-11, which means that the, the ability of journalists to come in and snoop and to find out what was going on, this was, this was severely curtailed. So I, I didn't even list, list those necessarily in the table. If I wanted to make each one of those a drill, we would have been well over 50. Maybe that would have been more dramatic, but this maybe doesn't qualify quite as a drill, but still, there it is. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The 46 Exercises and Drills of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, in terms of the, of the aircraft, let, let's distinguish now. I'm arguing my hop made it happen on purpose, and that is that this faction inside the U.S. government, it's an evil Wall Street faction, privately controlled. It's, it's illegal. It's, it's a putsch. It's a coup. It's an insurrection. These people are traitors. They're not loyal. They uh, made it happen. Now, there's a much weaker version, completely different, really, which is let it happen on purpose. And let it happen on purpose uh, essentially says that there really is a terrorist organization out there, and they really want to attack, and they will if you let them. And the, the accusation, of course, against Bush and Cheney was that they let it 
happen, uh, or somebody let it happen. I would just point out in passing, the official version of the 9-11 Commission, the unanswered questions, and it was accepting the Kane-Hamilton report with un- unanswered questions, the blowback version, which says, yes, it happened that way, but you deserve it. It was good because the, finally the third world is fighting back. This is something a lot of left liberals have a very deep uh, emotional need to believe. And the lie hop, let it happen on purpose. All of these are ultimately the same. Their world picture is all the same. Again, the official version, the unanswered questions, the blowback, and the lie hop, it's all the same because it all says there really is a terrorist organization out there that wants to attack you and will attack you. And if you drop your guard, they, they'll attack. So therefore, you need to fight them in some better way, right? Maybe not with Bush Cheney, but maybe with Kerry or with Obama, right? That's more or less what it comes down to. I'm arguing something different. Now, the drills that you mentioned, the air, the air drills have three components. Some people have said these are LIHOP drills. In other words, that when you remove the air defense, then the, the terrorists strike. Well, no, it's not that way at all. It's that the, the air drills are to prevent loyal elements in the, in the Air Force in particular from simply taking matters into their own hands and shooting down the, the planes before they can reach their targets. There's always this danger. So that had, they had to, they had to uh, prevent that from ever happening. But the same complex of, of drills of air defense also uh, cause the multiplication of hijack uh, targets. In other words, these drills, let me, let me mention what the drills are. It's a very large complex. It's a series of drills over about a decade uh, with increasing frequency in the two to three years before 9-11. But on the day of, we've got about, what, almost 25 drills on the day of. Uh, the big one is Vigilant Guardian, which is live fly hijacking and air defense, hijack multiplication, diversion, and confusion are the results. Uh, you've also got um, Vigilant Warrior, of which very little is known, but you've also got uh, other operations that tend to take airplanes away from the Boston to Washington uh, air defense zone. That would be Operation Southern Watch. That takes um, fighters to Saudi Arabia to impose the no-fly zone over southern Iraq. You've got Operation Northern Watch, takes airplanes from Langley, Virginia to Incherlik, Turkey, to impose the no-fly zone over at northern Iraq. You've got Operation Northern Vigilance uh, and Northern Guardian. These basically take airplanes from the same area and take them to Alaska, to northern Canada, and indeed to Iceland. You've even got an Andrews Air Force Base local drill that takes three of their very few planes to North Carolina. So there's a real complex. You've got another one, which I just discovered, which is also a big, uh, important one, and that is Red Flag. Red Flag, Nellis Air Force Base, Nevada. This takes 100 pilots and planes to Nevada. Isn't that convenient? Just at the time when, uh, when they would have been needed in the Washington to Boston area. So the F-15s of the 71st Fighter Squadron Langley Air Force Base, as well as the D.C. Air National Guard from Andrews Air Force Base, are also depleted by this by this drill. So the idea is you, you have very few planes left between Boston and uh, upstate New York and, uh, and Washington, D.C., because the idea is that, that some Air Force officer who's not part of the coup, who's actually loyal 
and not part of the putsch might say, well, I, it's clear what we have to do. We've got to put combat air patrol over Washington, D.C., and then we've got to defend other cities, starting with New York, and then, uh, and then so on down the line. So they want to make that less likely. The other thing that it does, and you can see this in the chapter that I've written, uh, we have these tapes and other reports coming out of the Northeast Air Defense Sector, Griffiths Air Force Base, Rome, New York. This is the, the command center for the entire air defense of the area that, that involves us on, on 9-11. And um, these people are in total confusion because they think they're in the middle of a drill. The vigilant guardian and quite possibly uh, some others are going on, and uh, hijackings are being faked and the entire scenario is being acted out. So you get again and again in these tapes that were released by Needs in the uh, summer of, uh, what, 2006 in Vanity Fair magazine. You can still listen to these on the, on the Internet. They keep asking, is this the drill or is this live? Is this real world or is it the drill? The drill, and of course, it, it creates tremendous confusion. The other thing that it does is that uh, fake blips, are inserted on their screens so they can't tell what they're looking at. And at a certain point, they've got to call NORAD in Cheyenne uh, Mountain there in Colorado and say, stop putting these fake blips on our, on our screens. So you have to imagine that they were putschist, coup-oriented coup officers in, the, uh, in that complex there under the mountain in, in Colorado. The other thing is that there are real airplanes, military and commercial, that are going around saying, I am hijacked, they're turning off their transponders, and all the rest of this. So you, you see the idea. And then, of course, that, that we're in the middle of, of hijacks, and uh, you know, these, these, again, the things that you hear from Atta don't prove anything, because Atta, in my analysis, thinks that he's reading a script in the middle of a drill. So what this does is it creates total confusion. But now, the stand-down. Everybody said, oh, the stand-down came from Cheney. Well... I wanted to ask you about the stand-down. I was going to ask you what your view of the Dick Cheney was in control belief. Uh, I think this is absolutely absurd. Let me say it right away. It's absolutely absurd. To control all this stuff, you have got to have a large command center with several, well, with a hundred consoles at least, uh, where you're bringing together all of this, this data and information. You've got to have... Uh, a point where you've got probably not military officers, but private sector operatives. I, I would think that this would have been a private military firm. This cannot be done by some uh, character like Cheney sitting in the White House with a couple of phones, with his pacemaker ticking away, right, waiting for his fifth heart attack or his sixth heart attack or whatever it is, and that he's directing this entire thing is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, if you want to see a stand-down order, uh, you can find it. And it comes out of Northeast Air Defense Sector. I think that this entire Cheney story is a diversion from where people should have been looking. It sounded very radical, right? Oh, Cheney did it. That sounded radical some years ago. But now you notice Bush and Cheney are long gone, the neocons are long gone, and false flag terrorism continues to occur. So it cannot have been them as the prime movers. They're you know, implicated to various degrees, right, according to their capability to participate in these things. And Cheney, it's true that Cheney acted as, as a spokesperson for the rogue network. That's, that's pretty much how he understands himself. But he's not the boss of it. He's simply 
the, the public relations. This is a man, if you can believe it. So um, the stand-down order that you do have is we have um, Colonel uh, Marr, uh, the head, the commander of the um, Northeast Air Defense Sector. There's a request to him, launch all your planes. And he says, no, I won't do that because if I launch all my planes now, then they will all run out of gas at the same point, and I can't do that. So I'm keeping them all on the runway. And this is, this is the key to why, for one hour and 45 minutes plus, there's no effective air defense in this uh, highly critical and indeed highly, usually highly militarized uh, area. And then when he does launch a couple of planes from Langley Air Force Base towards the end, he sends them out over the Atlantic Ocean. He, he neglects to tell them, well, the obvious, right? If you're a loyal officer, what do you do? The Northeast United States is under attack. I don't care how many planes you have. You can have two. You can have one. The first thing you do is you put your assets over Washington, D.C., because you've got to defend the White House, the Congress, the CIA, the NSA, the Pentagon, the National Command Authority in general. So you've got to have combat air patrol over Washington, D.C. You don't go chasing blips, you put your assets where the enemy, so to speak, is going to have to come to you, and you can shoot them down from there. And then once you've done that, you can think about New York, and then you can think about these other, other cities. But um, it's interesting that, uh, that the officers in command of this Northeast Air Defense Sector um, were, well, they received uh, relatively little scrutiny, because that is where you actually see a stand-down order which can be, which can be shown. It's, it's, it's clear. He says, I, I didn't want to I give the quote in, in that book, right? I didn't want to launch the planes because then they would all run out of gas at the same time. This is absolutely absurd from any, any point of view. And then, of course, we have General Eberhardt, who is the overall commander of the North American Air Defense Command, and General Larry Arnold, also of the North American Air Defense Command. Now, relevant to this is that Kane and Hamilton themselves uh, made mincemeat of their own report uh, a couple of years after they issued it, right? The Kane Hamilton report came out in 2004, and in the book by these two worthy uh, cover uppers, or whatever we can call them, in 2006 they wrote a book called Without Precedent. And in the course of their book, Without Precedent, they admitted what had been widely observed that the top officers of the U.S. Air Force committed massive perjury before the Kane Hamilton Commission, especially in regards to the timelines. Who knew what? When did they know it? What did they do? That had been completely mangled by the top generals of the U.S. Air Force. Uh, and at that point, the question was, well, is, is this at all serious? Does the Kane-Hamilton Commission take itself seriously enough to say, well, we're going to give criminal referrals for perjury, because these people were under oath, give that to the Justice Department? And they never did. They gave it to the Inspector General of the Air Force, and he, as usual, returned a verdict that there was nothing to it. His name, ironically enough, was Göring. I wonder if he's any relation to the other Air Force guy called Göring back some decades. What about um, what about a General Richard Myers? What part did he play? Well, again, highly suspicious, right? These are the people that you would have wanted to grill. And uh, again, there's no doubt that the coup d'etat was centered in the in the Air Force. So those are all. Very, very important questions. But now I think we, we ought to move on, right? This, this question with the air defense is, is critical, but then there's, a, there's another dimension. In other words, the, the basic thing that I'm arguing is every aspect, every meme of the myth 
is covered by drills. And in particular, well, uh, crashing airplanes into buildings. That would be the National Reconnaissance Office drill, Chantilly, Virginia. On the morning of 9-11, the NRO, which is satellite imaging, right? they can observe the entire world through these satellites. Right? The things that you see with the Google Earth was originally a, a, a program, I think, of this, uh, this particular agency. Simulated plane crash into high-rise government buildings and observing all that through satellite imaging. Uh, you can certainly argue that uh, radar was not the only way that these events could have been followed. Another way to do it is to simply follow it through through satellites from above, not not radar that uh, is based on the ground. So um, this National Reconnaissance Office drill is going on at the same time. And again, the, the same principle applies. If they're drilling, crashing planes into high-rise buildings, in this case, theoretically their own high-rise buildings, but it's easy to make those changes, then this is where you would have to go in. And uh, I, I give the name of the guy who was running the drill and all of that, and these people should have been drilled. But again, not only was it a uh, NRO drill, but we also have a New York City drill. This is called RedX, and this occurs a little bit beforehand. I, I separate the drills that are taking place on 9-11 from the ones that are taking place beforehand. But the ones beforehand are building up the capabilities, again, usually unbeknownst to most of the people involved, building up the capabilities that are going to be unleashed on 9-11. So RedX, Recognition, Evaluation, and Decision-Making Exercise. New York City Office of Emergency Management, New York City Fire Department, Police Department, FEMA, and the FBI. Plane crashes and building collapses in New York City. Now, doesn't that sound pretty much like the attack on the World Trade Center and the controlled demolition that followed. When were they drilling Red X, before or on the day of? Red X, May 11, 2001. That's the preparation, and then the actual operation is National Reconnaissance Office Drill, Chantilly, Virginia, on the morning of. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, the 46 exercises and drills of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Let's do one more, which I think is, is important to you know the main features. The event at the Pentagon, uh, people are, are, I think, going in circles about this. One of the first things that was known about the Pentagon, within about two or three weeks, my friend Thierry Maison of the Voltaire Network of France had come out with his analysis, which soon became a book. There was no Boeing at the Pentagon, and of course there, there wasn't. Uh, what there is is a flying object, uh, which is some kind of a cruise missile, unmanned aerial vehicle, drone aircraft, or something of this sort, which does hit the Pentagon and does create some damage. Now, there's also an argument where there are explosive charges inside the building. It's, it's possible, but the, the main thing is uh, there was a flying object because people did see something, and uh, this is uh, a drill. This is Amalgam Virgo 01. Now, that was carried out on June 1st to 2nd, 2001. Amalgam Virgo 01, U.S.-Canada multi-agency drill, NORAD, Southeast Air Defense Sector. This is not the one in uh, Rome, New York. This is one now in the, the southern states. Southeast Air Defense Sector, Coast Guard, Army, and Navy. And it's an unmanned aerial vehicle drone 
launched from a rogue freighter in the Gulf of Mexico or a cruise missile from a barge in the Atlantic Ocean. And it involves also testing a certain specific uh, radar. So I think something like this is, is what happened at the, uh, at the Pentagon. And it, it can be launched from a body of water. It can be launched from underwater. It can be launched from a mobile truck. Uh, once you get a cruise missile or something similar into the air, it's, it's basically almost impossible for the average person to detect, right? What you see then is the, is the explosion. So that's, that's the Pentagon. I, I see people are wasting their time about some aircraft. Did it go north of a gas station or south of a gas station? I think this is, this is typical of the swamp of triviality and irrelevancy uh, that, um, that this entire uh, research effort has foundered into over the past two or three years, mainly because what we're looking for with 9-11 it's not technical analysis, right? These endless technical debates about the, you know, the temperature of steel, the temperature of fires, and all these other things. These are interesting and can be con- continued, but not with the sectarianism and the narrow-mindedness that, that has been done. The main evidence is political. Uh, mystery stories are not how-done-its. They're who-done-it. And the who, in this case, is the rogue network, and they do it acting through the drills. So the merit of the drills is it puts everything back on the political plane where it belongs, rather than the apolitical, hyper-technical uh, plane. I call the, the direction of the 9-11 truth movement over recent years is hyper-technical triviality or hyper, hyper-technical um, avoidance of the, of the main political questions. Because the main thing is, what do you learn from this? Uh, and above all, what do you learn that's of permanent value? Political lessons of permanent value are the ones that don't just involve these things that are going to remain specific to, to 9-11, like the question about the temperature of steel or some other things. How do you get ready for the next one? In the first several years after 9-11, all of the discussion among researchers and citizenry was about the politics and the capability and uh, who benefited, etc. But in these last few years, it's become highly technical with the demolitions. Yeah, and again, I think that the, uh, basically, I think the, the controlled demolition story, the nanothermite story associated with, uh, with Professor Stephen Jones, I think this is broadly uh, plausible. I think this is, this is probably all in the right direction. But you've also got a lot of other people who are interested in uh, essentially in, in, in the role of an intellectual Gestapo saying, you know, we cannot uh, entertain the idea that there was no Boeing at the Pentagon or, or other things. And they try to exclude people and they try to vilify them and slander them. And with the result that this movement has fallen pretty much into impotence, in other words, it's, it's, it's largely falling apart. One of the, one of the permanent... Um, products of the 9-11 Truth Movement was a newspaper here in Washington called the Rock Creek Free Press, which was founded by the, the, the D.C. Uh, 9-11 Truth Group. Well, that, that uh, newspaper has now ceased publication. It has? The current issue. Yeah. Oh, After I five years, they've, they've given up. Oh. Yeah, it's unfortunate. But that's, that's simply the idea. And it also has to do with letting, uh, what can we say, letting Cass Sunstein take over your movement. Uh, Cass Sunstein, you'll remember, wrote this article a couple of years back where he demanded the cognitive infiltration of the 9-11 truth movement. Now, uh, this guy's now sitting in the White House. His wife, Samantha Power, is the person who ran the destabilization of Tunisia. She ran the destabilization of Egypt. She was sending uh, orders 
to Field Marshal Tantawi in Cairo, telling him to get Mubarak out. So Cass Sunstein, and he's, he wanted the cognitive infiltration. And it's clear that that's not going to be done necessarily by people who come on as neocons and warmongers and uh, racists and militarists. It's going to be carried out by people who come under left cover, because that's the, that's the secret of the whole age of Obama, is that you can do bigger and better crimes under left cover than you can under reactionary and neocon auspices. So a lot of these dubious characters who emerged in the 9-11 Truth Movement in 2006-2007 and then began banning and slandering and excluding the other people who had been uh, prominent in the movement before that, uh, you have to ask yourself, isn't this an example of Cass Sunstein? Plus, of course, when you get to WikiLeaks, it couldn't be clearer, right? You've got Julian Assange, the great WikiLeaks uh, artist, and his view of 9-11 is that it annoys him that people are interested in, in 9-11. In other words, the major, by all odds, the most important covert operation of the age, he finds irrelevant, and he wants you to look into his stories, which then all turn out to be things that help the imperialist cause, that Ben Ali is corrupt, that Gaddafi has a Ukrainian nurse, that Mubarak is corrupt, that Berlusconi is no good, that Karzai is no good, that Putin is no good, and so forth. Now, there's nothing that hurts anybody in London or Washington or, or Tel Aviv, but plenty that hurt their, uh, their intended victims. So I think that's, that's sort of the idea. Plus, the, the general idea is that the Obama regime, the Obama campaign, planned in many ways as a, as a covert operation, you might say, a color revolution is certainly that, uh, sucked all the oxygen out of the room. So that the not just the peace movement has collapsed, but the 9/11 truth movement has pretty much collapsed too. What is Angel is next? What are your sources for Angel is next? Oh, Angel is next is another uh, again one of the most important pieces of uh, of political evidence that we have. It's it's the warning that was issued to Bush. The the idea that Bush was the Bengali who's running all these things. Uh, is absolutely absurd. Uh, Bush is an expendable pawn in the middle of all this. And it's it's worth mentioning that uh, in that chapter that I have about Angel is Next, in the morning of 9-11 at this Longboat Key resort in Florida where Bush was staying, there's something going on that looks sort of like an assassination attempt against Bush, which is the arrival of a, a truckload of a, a camera team from um, some part of the Middle East who say they've got an appointment to do an interview with Bush, and they're sent away. They're not, they're not arrested. They're not rounded up. They're, they're just sent away. So there's, there's a whole series of, of um, strange events in the night between the 10th and the 11th of, of September. But specifically, by the time Bush is, uh, well, by the time he's in that schoolroom with the, the My Pet Goat, the big scandal there is that the Secret Service is supposed to pick him up physically and get him out of there as soon as they know that the U.S. is under attack. They're not supposed to let him stay there because his whereabouts are very widely known. They're supposed to get him out of there, and they don't do it. So we should, we should be interviewing the people in the Secret Service who are responsible for that. Then when he gets up into his airplane, he's getting these threatening messages. Angel is next, meaning Air Force One is going to be the next victim unless you do what we want. And this is not coming in, you know, through a, a crank call. It's coming in on uh, secure communications, and it's coming in with a series of code words and other evidence, which indicate that it's a faction that cuts across 
the main power agencies, we might say, the Pentagon, the CIA, the DIA, the NSA, and so forth, they're all in on the, on the coup, and they're sending Bush these warnings that they want him to do something. And you, you notice in the, in the first speech that he gives, this statement, uh, he doesn't say anything about terrorism. He doesn't say anything about bin Laden. He doesn't say anything about al-Qaeda. This is what they want. They want him to go on television and say, bin Laden, bin Laden, bin Laden, al-Qaeda, 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 war of civilizations begins now, we'll be attacking soon. Because this is what they want. They want, you could say they want an attack on Afghanistan. What they're really looking for is an attack on Pakistan. And you'll remember that uh, in October 2001, we had this blood-curdling ultimatum from the U.S. to Pakistan, delivered by this uh, thug, Richard Armitage, where he says, that the U.S. says to Pakistan, if you don't give us flyover bases, the use of your transportation system, if you don't let us run wild across your territory any way we want, we'll bomb you back into the Stone Age. That was the immediate uh, aftermath in terms of Pakistan. The U.S. is not on the border of Pakistan because Pakistan wanted it, even though uh, Musharraf was pretty much a U.S. asset. He had to receive this ultimatum in order to, to do it. Uh, Webster, in addition to the United States Air Force and the removal of many planes to other parts of the world so that they were not on, on duty and, and ready to defend on September 11th, what about the diversion of counterintelligence to Monterey, California? What can you tell us about that? Well, this reminds us of the, the JFK movie where the, uh, the Pletcher Prouty character, the, one of the top people of Army intelligence, is sent to the South Pole in time for the JFK assassination, which is going to be in Texas. In this case, the entire FBI-CIA anti-terrorist task force, with all their equipment, all their helicopters and everything else, I sent to Monterey, California, very far from New York and Washington, um, right on that day. So that entire capability, which might have made some difference, uh, was simply diverted out of the picture. So they all end up in, in California, and they can't get back because they, they have to arrange special military aircraft, which are very much in demand, and they don't get the priority that they wanted. I guess the priority was to fly members of the Bin Laden family out of the country, but not these people. They they end up staying in in Monterey, California, quite a while when they when they would have been uh, better deployed in uh, in this eastern corridor, as it turned out. Well, right, because all of the planes had been grounded. Right, so they end up there. Uh, that's another drill. Maybe I could just tick off a few others, right? Since we we probably have limited time. Sure. Um, just a few other leading drills. Um, there's a whole array of drills in the late 90s, which involve uh, using airplanes as weapons against buildings. Condoleezza Rice was a liar. Bush, Bush of course, lied. Um, just a couple of examples. Um, Richard Clark in 1998 did an exercise with a Learjet uh, was loaded with explosives and attacked Washington, D.C. We have um, uh, NORAD drills, in 2000, terrorist crashes Federal Express plane into the headquarters of the UN. They did that once, sort of in the conventional mode, and in the second case, with weapons of mass destruction on the plane. Uh, we had Pentagon mass casualty exercise in October 2000. Commercial aircraft hits the Pentagon. Uh, interesting is the whole question of transponders, right? What happens when these planes turn off their transponders? That's covered by an FAA drill in December 2000. 
uh, an aircraft coming out of Ohio turns its transponder off. Not so different from things that actually happen. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, The 46 Exercises and Drills of 9-11. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The uh, attack on the Pentagon is also prepared by Positive Force 01, NORAD and a dozen other agencies. This is in April 2001. It's a terrorist group hijacks a commercial airliner and flies it into the Pentagon, but it's also combined with continuity of government. Continuity of government is shorthand for the establishment of a dictatorship, as we'll get to in just a minute. Um, the, the invasion of Afghanistan is uh, prepared by a drill. Unified Vision 01, this is uh, Joint Forces uh, Command, Central Command, Special Forces Command, and 40 other agencies. This is uh, essentially uh, the preparation, as they say, of a landlocked country where the U.S. has no bases and no nearby bases, and how do you get in there, and how do you operate? Um, Amalgam Virgo 02, this is one that was scheduled for somewhat later, but this gives us an idea of how 9-11 is done. Uh, This scenario calls for a Delta commercial airliner with real Delta pilots, the passengers are actors, and the FBI provides the hijackers. (laughs) And I would say Mohammed Atta is probably somebody from FBI central casting for this kind of thing. Now that we're talking about the patsies, Let's also mention the question of patsy management, patsy recruiting, and so forth. And in my view, this is able danger. Uh, The big annual anti-terror drill is able warrior. Able danger, able warrior. Drills come in pairs. One is attack, one is defense. If able warrior is the defense, uh, able danger may be the attack. And if you want to simulate an attack in a drill, what do you need? You need a bunch of patsies, except these patsies are... Very unstable specimens, right? They're psychotics, fanatics, misfits, double agents, drug addicts, criminal types, whatever they are. They've got to be monitored. And one way to monitor them is with data mining. And I take it that's what Able Danger was. Uh, This is the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Special Forces Command. Whenever you see the Special Forces Command, we're close to this question of, uh, of terrorists who are also patsies. Inside Able Danger is Stratus Ivy. Uh, that's to operate on patsies out of the box and door hop galley, even more secret inside that. It's like, uh, you know, the Russian dolls. Um, the, the remarks made by Congressman Weldon of Pennsylvania were that the goal of this had been to manipulate the terrorists. Well, manipulating terrorists means being a case officer and being a terrorist controller. And we've also got the famous P2OG proactive preemptive operations group stimulating reactions of terrorists well to stimulate that's the same thing you're manipulating them you're getting them to do what you want that's exactly the task of a of a of a case officer who's running a terrorist now you mentioned congressman weldon what happened to him well the typical uh what happens to people in this who who bring up things that the the uh, rogue network doesn't like is that if they're elected officials, they're, they're vilified and slandered, and there's a threat to indict them. And then when, once they're out of office, there's no trial. This happened to Senator Robert Torricelli of New Jersey, who was the first uh, elected uh, official of any note in the Congress to demand an immediate board of inquiry. And in his case, he was accused of being a mafioso, 
except then once he was out of office, he lost his nomination in his election. There was never an indictment. There was never a trial. Weldon is the same story. He was accused of corruption. His family was corrupt and all this stuff. And then after that election in which he, he lost his, his seat, then nothing ever, nothing ever happened. So uh, that's important to note. Um, the acceptance of this entire scenario by the average person uh, is also an important feature. And here the cell phone conversations play a very important role. These are these heart-rending cell phone conversations of, of close relatives, husbands, wives, and so forth. You know, uh, I love you, I love the children, uh, and now I'm, I'm on a hijacked airplane, right? And this was, this was, of course, very effective. Maybe people would be interested to know that that entire complex was drilled before the fact with a, a special drill covering, covering that. In other words, you've, you've got to have your Jessica Lynch story. You've got to have your Kuwait incubator babies. You've got to have this entire thing reduced to the level of the average person. You might even say of little people like you, right, for many people, so that you can understand. For most people, abstractions like you know, geopolitics, Eurasia, Islamic fundamentalism, this means very little, but everybody can understand these tearful uh, conversations. So here we have, right before the fact, August 31st, 2001, U.S. Department of Transportation hijacking exercise with uh, the U.S. Department of Transportation Crisis Management Center drilling hijacks, including simulated phone calls from the airplanes. And, of course, what that means is this entire question of how could these calls be made, who was really doing the talking, and a whole series of other unanswered questions, right? The contradictions inside the story, why Theodore Olson plays such an important role in this, and, and on and on. I've always been very skeptical about these, and others have have looked into them. And I think the, the, the obvious avenue is to look at that, look at that drill. Now, uh, with all of these going on, and, and there are, of course, more, let's then look at the really scary stuff. Um, the, the outcome of 9-11 in terms of international politics is that the U.S. essentially issues an ultimatum to the world saying, we are seizing Afghanistan now, and we're also going to put Pakistan under limited sovereignty. We're going to essentially do to Pakistan what, what they tried to do to Serbia uh, two years before. The Serbs had said no, at least had, had said no for quite a while. But in the case of Pakistan, they wanted to be able to run wild all across the country and begin terror operations there, which is what we see now. Uh, how do you do that? Well, the, the main danger is Russia with Putin. And here you have a very energetic and courageous leader and the problem with, with Afghanistan is if the United States says, guess what, we're seizing Afghanistan, Russia could easily say, no, you're not. And here are our H-bombs, and if you try it, we'll blow your head off. Now, that's an extreme scenario, but it's possible. So what you've got to do if you're organizing this, uh, as the invisible government did, is you've got to intimidate Russia. And this was told to me by uh, General Ivashov, who was in command in Moscow that morning, that before any... Um, hijackings had occurred. On the morning of 9-11, the Russian high command looked at the United States and saw an all-out thermonuclear war deployment. B-52s in the air, submarines ready, missiles ready, everything ready for a launch. And what was that? Well, it's obviously designed to, to intimidate them to begin with. This is Global Guardian. This is U.S. STRATCOM. It's the main nuclear warfighting air force bases, Offutt, Nebraska, Barksdale, Louisiana, Minot, North Dakota, Whiteman, 
Missouri. It's an Armageddon drill, and it's designed to deter Russia and China during the invasion of Afghanistan and, and Pakistan. And this includes Amalgam Warrior, which is uh, another large-scale, live-fly, air defense, air intercept uh, drill. The, the air intercept, of course, means that you're beefing up the uh, intercept capabilities vis-a-vis Russia in particular. Right? You've got nothing in, in Washington to, to Boston area, but you've got plenty of things up in the, around the North Pole where the, the Russians would be coming. You've also got two exercises of which nothing is known. Crown Vigilance of the Air Combat Command and Apollo Guardian of the U.S. Space Command. And I have no details. I couldn't find any details about any of those. Now, in the middle of the um, Global Guardian, you have what I call the backdoor to thermonuclear war. In other words, suppose the Russians say, yes, we see your thermonuclear forces ready to go, and we understand that you want to, you want to seize Afghanistan, but we're still not going to let you do it. We're going to, we're going to call your bluff. What are you going to do next? And at that point, you've got to be able to actually launch thermonuclear missiles. And there's good indication that the rogue network does have this ability. They prepared for that, too. This is within the framework of Global Guardian, and this is all from, from uh, published sources, uh, more or less in the mainstream. Within the framework of this, there's the simulation of um, what you could call the denial of service attack on the uh, U.S. Uh, STRATCOM, right? Strategic uh, used to be the Strategic Air Command. So the enemy forces war-dialed the STRATCOM telephone, fax, and maybe computer systems. And, this is the key, a bad insider has access to a key system of command control and communication. And this bad insider, if he's got access to command, may be able to launch nuclear missiles. So what happens if the pretend bad insider becomes a real bad insider, i.e. the rogue network, and uses his pretend access to the C-cubed to make it into a real access to the C-cubed and actually has the ability to launch a missile? Because you want to be able to do this without reference to Bush, because you know you can't count on him. He may be... He may be out to lunch. He may be, you know, he he may have had a plane crashed into uh, into Air Force One. So this is is definitely there. And finally, the the last piece of this is, if Bush uh, refuses, suppose Bush goes on television and says uh, a military coup is going on in the United States, and I'm going to fight it because I'm the president and I believe in the Constitution. You never know what might happen. Um, Suppose then he's eliminated, right? The, the inherent threat of Angel is next is that airplanes would come and, uh, and shoot down Air Force One. And there's, this, there's a very tense uh, kabuki between Air Force One and the Air Force uh, fighters that are either not there to escort it or they show up and then they act strangely. There's a whole uh, can of worms about that. But suppose Bush falls by the wayside. Suppose Cheney has a heart attack. What do you do then? Can you then look to uh, the Speaker of the House? Uh, what are you going to do? Is it, is it going to be the President pro tem of the Senate? Uh, this is not not what the Rogue Network wants. So I think they've got a, a they've got an emergency government waiting in the wings. And this is this um, uh, the National Airborne Operations Center. Uh, U.S. Stratcom has a strategic advisory committee of which almost nothing is known. And this is at Offutt, Nebraska, Andrews, Maryland, Wright-Patterson, Ohio. They've got three 
of the doomsday aircraft in the air. Doomsday aircraft equipped with the looking glass communication system and the passengers. We've got a, a real eminence grise of the invisible government. Brent Scowcroft is on one of the planes, and you've got Warren Buffett at Offutt Air Force Base. Now, if Bush and Cheney fall, fall by the wayside, you might have had late in the day the declaration of a committee of public safety of some kind, um, uh, you know, the coup out in the open at that point, maybe featuring the high government official Scowcroft and, uh, and somebody like Warren Buffett, uh, a business leader, I guess they'd say, plus others. There, there may have been others at these, at these places. We've also got, worth noting, is a, a special drill ordered by General Larry Arnold, the NORAD commander. He's got two AWACS planes from Tinker Air Force Base, Oklahoma, have been sent to Washington, D.C., where the government is, and Florida, where Bush is. And that looks like a kind of surveillance or overview of everything that's happening, monitoring. They'd have their own independent, uh, a little bit above the ground, uh, view of what's happening. So generally speaking, it's the form of a military coup with the help of high civilian government officials. And I'm sure the center of gravity is on the civilian side, especially when you, you add in the Wall Street uh, factor. When with civilian meaning Wall Street centered. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been the 46 Exercises and Drills of 9-11. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, is now out in paperback. 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, is now in its fifth edition. A chart of the 46 exercises and drills of 9-11 can be seen at his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To make comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with inside yourself for peace. Give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me? <laughs>